Well, good morning, and it is good to see each of you this morning, and I'll also add to uh, what the other men have said, happy Father's Day. Being a father is one of my top favorite titles, or if you would, caps that I wear, Um, being God's child first, and then a husband, and then a father. And uh, I joke around and tell people I'm actually 27, but I have six children, so that's the complexities of Raising children, right? We're joyful and we're weary, uh, but it's a wonderful mix of emotions. And Jesus often in his teaching would refer back to the relationships within a home. He would say, you know, if you being a good father ask for specific gifts, you know, if your child asks for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give him a stone. And so Jesus would often go back into the home and draw all these analogies out so that we understood our Heavenly Father better. Uh, some of you, this is not my case, but some of you did not have godly fathers. Some of you may not have had a present father at all. And um, God has revealed himself so that we do not evaluate who he is from our limited perspective. He's revealed himself to us so that we understand what kind of father he is as he has revealed himself to us. And so there's great, great hope in that. Uh, our father knows what needs we have, right? And there's this constant encouragement of those things. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at Titus chapter 2, and we're going to talk about not just fathers. We offer a class here on parenting where we talk about the objectives and the goals and the delights and the challenges of being a father or being a parent. Uh, but this morning, I want to talk about the mission entrusted to older men. Okay, so if you are a man here, you qualify. And so many of these principles are actually cross-gender. These are put forward uh, for the household of faith to grow and to learn from. Um, Matt handed me a little book uh, this week. And in the beginning, I was challenged by the introduction of Dawson Trotman's life. Dawson Trotman was the founder of the Navigators. He died when he was 50 years old, saving a young girl from drowning in Shroon Lake, New York. And Dawson Trotman was an effective disciple maker. And any man in his life, Dawson Trotman would go up to and he would ask this question. Where are your men? So if he were here this morning, he would most likely look at you and he would say, where are your men? And what he meant by that is who is in your life that you are discipling? Who is the other person or people in your life that you are coaching and bringing along? Certainly our children, but outside of our children, who are your men? Who are you coaching and bringing along? The idea of discipleship was anchored in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. And listen to what this says. Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. And notice this next phrase so that they might be with him. He didn't just recruit them to do a work. He brought them in near to himself so that they might be with him and know him, follow and learn from him. Relationship and fellowship must happen before effective ministry. After they were with him, then he sent them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Some of us have learned sort of what I would call a textbook Christianity, right principles, not wrong principles, right principles. But even right principles are hollow 
if it is not fueled by a relationship with the personal Christ. You can tell when a person has spent time with Jesus. It's not just right answers. It's not just right facts. It's not just a a winning defense or argument. There's something about the spirit of a person when they have been in the very presence of Jesus Christ through His Word. That's what happens when you, like Colossians 3.16, exhorts us to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That has an effect as though you have been in the very presence of Jesus Christ, as though you sat at a meal with Him. I love what Acts 4.13 says, when other people noticed Uh, Peter and John's spirit and actions. Listen to what they said about Peter and John. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do people recognize that in you? Older men, do people recognize that in you? You know, those who follow and learn from Jesus, that's what disciple means. To be a disciple means I'm going to follow and learn from him. And to be a follower learner of Jesus means that we will demonstrate a certain type of behavior This is not legalism. This is simply the fruit of relationship. There is a certain kind of demeanor or a certain kind of behavior that comes out from a person who chooses to follow and learn from Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in Titus 2, verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and sound. That means healthy. And they're supposed to be healthy in three ways. Sound in faith and in love, and in steadfastness. And we looked at this passage, we looked at the next section uh, on Mother's Day, and we noticed that these commands, these instructions, don't just kind of float out there by themselves, but they're tethered to God's grace. So the first thing I want to consider, look down at Titus chapter 2, verse 11, is that God's grace covers our past and provides purpose and hope for the future. I think sometimes especially dads need to hear that message because dads fail too. And some of us fail better than others. And some of us have a hard time allowing God's grace to make up for those failures. Look at Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. There's four truths from this section I just want to highlight before we get into the specific instructions to older men. First, when grace appears, grace transforms. That's what God's grace does. God's grace does not leave a person untouched. Yes, it accepts you as you are, but it doesn't leave you where you are. It brings salvation and it trains us. This is very important because grace has to appear. We cannot save ourselves, but neither can we change ourselves to be godly. Yes, we can reform the external, but we cannot transform our own heart. Charles Spurgeon said this, grace is the first and last moving cause of salvation and faith, essential as it is, is only an important part of the machinery which grace employs. We are saved through faith, but salvation is by grace. When grace appears, grace transforms. Second, notice the target. It brings salvation for all people. This does not mean all people without exception. It simply means all people without distinction. God's grace is for the wealthy and for the poor, for the American and the Somali and the Iranian and the Nepali. All people without distinction. 
And you know, when, we are, when, when grace appears and grace transforms us, that means that, that even though we may have an address in a middle upper class culture, people that are with Jesus and people that look like Jesus will actually move in different circles. What I mean by that is, yes, you might be in the banquet halls with the wealthy, but you're also going to be down on the streets and reaching out and showing the love of Christ to those who are camped downtown Colfax. It brings salvation for all people. Third, notice this. God's grace trains believers. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Let me ask you, do believers still sin? Yes, there is a principle of sin that is still in us. We long for, we wait for, we live, we make right choices, but we are desiring that final aspect of our salvation, which is glorification. It says when we see him, we will be like him. Believers can even choose to live in a sinful season for a time. But I want you to notice this. Grace will not allow us to comfortably settle down and live in sin long term. Matter of fact, that's one of God's graces. Whom the Lord loves, he wants. He corrects, he chastens. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, Hebrews 12, verse 6, and chastises every son whom he receives. That's what grace looks like sometimes because you are his child, because he is your father. He steps in and does not allow you to make a home living in sin. Grace is a loving and protective father who will not let sin re-enslave his children. David Mathis in his book Habits of Grace writes this, the three key principles of ongoing grace are these hearing God's voice, his word, having his ear prayer and belonging to his body fellowship. The means of grace are not about earning God's favor, twisting his arm or controlling his blessing, but readying ourselves for consistent saturation in the role of his tithes. God's grace trains us to say no to sin. And then fourth, in that latter part of this passage, God's grace provides purpose and hope for the future. We say this often, we live between two appearings. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save sinners, but he's coming again. And we live between those two appearings. And so the scripture says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait for this one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We wait with purpose. Now, what is that purpose? Really quick, look with me at the different purposes. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 9. We're going to work backwards through these different purposes. these different qualifications of people. And first of all, it's bondservants. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? You're going to keep seeing these two words. Why? So that. Do you see that? What does it say? So that in everything... They may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Do you, do you realize as a servant, you realize that your station in life is low? You can adorn the doctrine of God? 
That means whether you are a powerful Manhattan lawyer or whether you prepare tacos at a local drive through, you can adorn the doctrine of God. We have the ability, regardless of our station in life, regardless of our earthly status to crown. That's the idea of adorn to crown the doctrine of God. How? By grace shaped behavior. I observed three doctors adorn the doctrine of God in the Himalayas last month. One of those is one of our members. One of the surgeons, he was a cosmetic surgeon, went into a field next to a Nepali farmer and helped him spread manure with his hands. He's out there just spreading manure. He can't even talk to the man in the field. But he was hoping that that man knew who we were with, what organization we were with. And he's out there. He's got it all over his arms. Several of us on the team had already been so sick. And he is out there hand spreading and tossing manure with a with an Apali father and his young son. He adorned the doctrine of God. Regardless of his station, he went out and crowned the grace of God. In front of not only in front of those people in the field, but in front of the rest of the team and those who were living in this little village. One of our members was kindly using his skill to teach and to help others. And almost as far as I remember, every home we visited together, he was able to use the skills God blessed him with to help these very poor and hurting people. He crowned the doctrine of God. There's another category, younger men. Look at Titus 2, verse 6. While we wait with purpose, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? What's the purpose for that? Young men, why does, why does the Scripture press in upon you to live this way? Why? Look at the two words. So that. What's the reason? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So when they look at your life, they shouldn't say, yeah, that's exactly how I live. That's exactly how I spend my time. That's exactly how I spend my money. Those are the exact things we do. I don't need the gospel, therefore. No, younger men, you have a unique Way of showing forth the glory and the grace of God. Young men, 20 to 40 year olds, are you a model of good works? When you instruct others about life, do you show integrity and dignity and healthy speech? Can an opponent say anything evil about you and by extension say something evil about your Christ? Look at Titus 2 verse 5. Older women. So we go from bond servants to young men to older women. Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why? What is the purpose while we wait for the appearing of Jesus Christ? What is the purpose for living like that? That the word of God may not be reviled. Godly conduct commends the message of the gospel. 
And inside of our homes and inside of our lives, God intends to display His grace through redemptive relationships. And so to older men, He says this. Look at Titus 2, verse 2. Older men. Older men are to be something. You see that? Now the word older men is a term used for elders. It's presbuti, from presbytery, from Older or grave men. It's the same term used of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. That's the word. And my wife is advanced in years. This is a challenge to older men. Paul said this in his letter to Philemon. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, that's Paul's authority, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. That's the term, old man. It's what caused Hendrickson and Kistemaker in their commentary to say this, the gray beards, I love that term, the gray beards, the gray beards should have the same moral characteristics as the elders and deacons. Older men are to be something. Why? Because grace has appeared. That's our profession. That's our confession. Because the grace of God has appeared, we live a certain way. Older men are to be. Grace has expectations. Can we, can we be very clear on this? Grace is not just undisciplined freedom. Now, it's broad. And we just heard from David Anderson up where our teens were at for camp this last weekend. There is an uncomfortable breadth to God's grace. Would you agree with that? But it's not a reckless freedom. Grace has edges and expectations. And because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, it teaches us to say no to sin. Therefore, older men are supposed to look a certain way. The graybeards, those who lead us an example to us this morning are to show us that grace comes with responsibility. Well, what does that look like? What are they supposed to be? God's grace displayed through older men. Older men are to be sober minded. That carries the sense of clear headed. This means moderate with respect to all tastes and habits. Drink, food, entertainment, the use of time, the stewarding of influence. Older men should display God's grace by being clear headed. Have you ever met an older man who's just silly, like not funny, silly, but there's just no depth? Grace prevents that. Grace allows a man to grow older and grayer. By giving him a clear-headedness. He's someone that others can go to for counsel and guidance. Godly men are clear-headed in times of peace and in times of war. Actually, a clear-headed man understands there really are no genuine times of peace, right? It's not like Satan ever goes on vacation or that the, uh, the battleground ever becomes a playground. So clear-headed men realize we are in a battle all the time. A Delta Force commander observed this. He said, quote, years of conducting operations in urban environments had taught us that when, that when all is calm in the city, something is usually awry. 
The single most important lesson I learned is that the most effective weapon on any battlefield, whether it be combat, business, or life, is our mind's ability to recognize life's underlying patterns. And when they would come up to a city and it was disturbingly quiet, they knew that the danger was increased. Dads, we live in a culture that presents itself as peacetime. But we are in a battle for the souls of our children even today. And while they're under your home, you're responsible for them. Your influence. And that doesn't always mean you're going to be popular. It doesn't always mean you're going to be liked. I'm okay if I'm not liked sometimes as long as I know that, that there is a love there even though they disagree with me. Men, we will never influence others in a godly way if we ourselves are under the influence of our ego and appetites. Older men are to be sober-minded. So Paul says in Acts 20.31, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, neither day, to admonish everyone with tears. Be alert. The Word has been preached to you. Paul has taught you the truth. Be alert. Listen to these things. In Ephesians 6.18, he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. In both cases, these are connected to prayer. On one occasion, there was a particular demon. Do you remember this in, in, in the Gospel of Mark? A particular demon that even the disciples could not cast out. Now, they were with Jesus, and then he sent them to have authority over the demons. But this demon would not budge. And when they came to Jesus, they asked him, when they went back to the house, Mark 9, 28 says, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples failed on one simple point, and that was prayerlessness. Dads, we can fail on one simple point, and that is interceding for our families. Sober-minded men are men of prayer. Older men are to be clear-headed. Secondly, older men are to be dignified. For a man to be dignified means that his actions and demeanor make him worthy of respect. So when you see this individual, not just, not just for, for two hours on a Sunday morning, but when you see them in their home and with strangers, with their wife, interacting with their children, interacting in their neighborhood, there is something about the man, something consistent about his life that is worthy of respect, serious and worthy. That doesn't mean he can't have a sense of humor. It's not what serious means. I remember reading that a lady had come up to Charles Spurgeon on one occasion and she accused him of telling too many jokes in the pulpit. And he said, Madam, if you knew how many funny thoughts came into my mind that I suppressed, you would think I was a very conservative man. So it doesn't mean that you cannot have a sense of humor. It doesn't mean that you can't joke. It doesn't mean you can't look at the realities of the world and laugh at some of those things, but it does mean you are worthy of respect. A sinfully critical man is not respectable. Coarse humor is not respectable. Rudeness is not worthy of respect. A low view of women, men, is not worthy of respect. 
A husband who loves his wife is dignified. A father who does not provoke his children is respectable. A father who is slow to anger and slow to speak and quick to hear is respectable. A father who steps away from the fast lane of money and success to spend time with his family, to train them, to get involved in Christ's church, to be present and accessible is worthy of respect. Older men, be dignified, respectable. And then third, look at this. Older men are to be self-controlled. This is a proper constraint of their thoughts, their spirit, their words, and their actions. And so that really leads us today to a question. Fathers, are you self-controlled with your children when no one else is watching? And really only you and maybe your wife and your children know the true answer to that. Do you know that frustration and anger can crush a child's spirit quicker than almost anything else in the world? Do you know that frustration and anger specifically from a father can break a child's spirit almost quicker than anything else in the world? Right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Names will never hurt me. That is a lie. Even a father using sarcasm on the heart of his child or a father showing preference for one child over another or a father ridiculing or a father just never allowing that child to be affirmed or to measure up is crushing. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 4 provides restraint and the shaping of your authority. It doesn't just give you unwarranted authority. It shapes it. It directs it. Don't provoke. Bring them up. Nourish and feed. Not just with food, but with attention and care. This past week, I observed one of our dads comforting his son who had a pint-sized interpersonal conflict with a sibling. And he runs over. So-and-so's treating me mean, said this. I keep hurting myself and she keeps laughing at me. The dad didn't go into a tirade against his daughter. He picked up his son. He held him. I just, I'm just watching this. He's comforting him. He said, I'm sorry that she's laughing at you. Are you okay? There was this affirmation. I could just, I was watching the child's face. Just every, it's like the whole world became right again. And it wasn't because the unkind action had stopped. It was because dad took attention. He was in dad's arms. He was being affirmed and he was being cared for. You protect them. You bring them up. You love them. You bring them up in discipline and instruction. Systematic instruction to respect the Lord and his commands as the foundation of all of life and godliness and blessing. A couple weeks ago, I saw another one of our dads guide his young child uh, to work through a Sunday morning mood. Have you ever had one of those? Sunday morning mood? You just wake up and nothing's right? And you're supposed to come here and worship? Right? Well, this was happening to this under 10-year-old. And I went to say hello to him and I stuck my hand out and I was completely rejected with the most sour poochy lip. Okay? 
I was like, okay. So I just kind of walked away and I, and I saw out of the corner of my eye that dad took him aside and was dealing with him. And I, hadn't, I wasn't expecting anything after that. But later on, he, I haven't said any names yet, right, in either of these illustrations. Um, later on, that was a yes, right? Okay. So later on, he comes back and, um, Pastor Hafler, I'm sorry. I should have said hello to you. And then he reached out and he shook my hand. Okay. Now, my guess is he's going to have another Sunday morning mood sometime soon. But I saw a dad nurturing through discipline and instruction. The picture is of a self-controlled and patient educator of his children. I like what John Stott wrote. Every child must be allowed to be himself. Wise parents recognize that not all the non-conforming responses of childhood deserve to be styled rebellion. On the contrary, it is by experiment that children discover both the limits of their liberty and the quality of their parents' love. Older men are to be self-controlled, not irritating and unreasonable with their demands, not harsh or cruel, not sarcasm or ridicule, self-controlled. And then finally, older men are to be sound. It's the final instruction. And there are three areas. I love that when I get to the end of the outline, but I get three more points. Did you see that? That was tricky, wasn't it? Right? Older men are to be four things, but the last point has three things he's supposed to be. Okay, so there are three areas in which older men are to be sound. What does that word sound mean? Really, it's a medical term for a broken bone that is brought back together and mended. It is healed It is healthy. Our teaching is to be healthy. Well, older men are instructed to be sound in three areas. First of all, older men are to be sound or healthy in faith. They they should manifest a healthy trust in God. Older men should never be continually and habitually in despair or worried. There's a healthy trust in God, in his sovereignty, in his care. And they're actually instructing other people who are given to the waves of discouragement and anxiety to come along. Because you have a healthy trust in God and a healthy trust in his word. I would love for each of our men to exemplify what is expected of elders in Titus 1 verse 9, which says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul then explains what this means. He goes on in the next verse. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuked by older men who are sound in the faith, that they too be sound in the faith. Healthy trust. Secondly, older men are to be sound in love. We should manifest a healthy love towards God and towards everybody we come into contact with, including your enemies, because that's what our master taught. And that older men are to be sound or healthy in steadfastness, perseverance and endurance through all the seasons of life. And and, and gentlemen, it is it is possible for us to get this far into life. And for the gray beards to have experienced so much disappointment and so much rejection and so much hurt that they become either cynical or stubborn. And you are to be an example of healthy steadfastness, healthy perseverance, 
not just healthy, but health imparting. So here's another question, gentlemen. Are you are you life imparting? Are you life giving to those around you? When you come home, is there a sense of of life giving that you bring into that house or are you life sapping? When they hear the car door of dad's vehicle come home, is it uh, or is it I can greet you at the door? I still have teens that do that. No, I have adults that do that still, which is a joy. Are you life imparting to the people around you? Dawson Trotman would ask, where are your men? Who are you imparting life to? So the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words of the healthy words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you know our younger men, our younger girls, our women need to see this example? But it's a two way street, gentlemen, to be able to ask for respect means you need to be worthy of respect. You need to be healthy in these areas. I would love for our younger men to look at any one of our 40 plus men in here and say, I want to be like that. I want to be like him. I want whatever he has to rub off on me. Where are your men? Well, in conclusion, I want to consider two men by way of specific application. Caleb in the Old Testament, Peter in the New Testament. As a young man, Caleb was one of the 12 spies. You know the story. And he went in with Joshua and he was one of the two that came out and he believed God and he was ready to go in and take the land. But the other men were not persuaded because of the giants and because of their own fear. And they let fear paralyze their own heart to the point where they did not believe in God anymore. Of course, you know the story in Numbers chapter 13 to 14. They were fearful, so Israel did not at that time enter the promised land. But the story of Caleb does not end there. Forty-five, forty-five years later, with Israel now invading Canaan, Caleb is still on the scene. This is... This is impressive. Let me, I actually, I want to read you the passage out of Joshua chapter 14, because that'll give you the ages, and all of a sudden you'll see Caleb pop up again, and I want you to note something about his character. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me? So Caleb's coming back to Joshua. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. So you have Caleb and Joshua ready to move in. But the majority made the people's hearts melt with fear. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Now remember, they didn't go in and get the land. Caleb was promised an inheritance that he wouldn't see for more than four decades. Caleb says, And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. 
I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Here he is, 85 years old and he's ready to do what? He is still ready to go in and fight the giants. Then, then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite to this day, because, and I want you to miss this, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, Caleb did not retire from serving God. He was a gray beard who was sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Eighty-five years old, and by faith he's ready to go in and take the land still, unwavering. And then there's Peter. And I think Christian men should understand the grace of God like Peter grew to understand the grace of God. Three times Peter denied Jesus. He failed miserably men we don't make a plan for it but we fail too he cursed he quit when he seemed to be needed the most he gave his word that even though everybody else would fall away not him uh uh-uh he let others down he did not keep his word he disappointed he was certainly overwhelmed by shame and guilt but listen jesus didn't put failing peter on a shelf This is a beautiful picture, gentlemen. He restored him within 40 days because it was before Jesus ascended to heaven. He showed grace to Peter and he still commissioned Peter to be the leader of other men. This is an incredible scene in John 21. Of course, they're out fishing. You remember this? And somebody recognized Jesus on the shore and they said, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps in. Remember this? And he swims over to Jesus Christ. Jesus said to them, the disciples, the other disciples are there. So you've got to get the context clearly to understand what's happening. It's not just Peter and the Lord. It's Peter and the other disciples and the Lord. And Jesus says, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now, remember, the others are sitting around the fire. They had just eaten a fellowship breakfast. And Jesus says this to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Probably not the fish. He knew Peter loved fish. Do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Right? Remember what he said. Though all of them fall away, not me. Mm -mm. Peter, do you love me more than these? He said to him, You know that I love you, Lord. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep, right? Lead, lead. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, and I love this. Lord, you know everything. 
And you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times, Jesus is publicly offsetting his three denials by giving him an opportunity in front of other men to give three affirmations. And he's not put on a shelf and abandoned. He is commissioned, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Men, some of you have failed. We have failed. We have regrets and we can't undo those. But neither do you have to wallow in your failures. You have a gracious Lord Jesus who says, do you love me? You know all things, Lord. So he knows how we have failed. He already knows that. But then he invites, his grace invites you to come back. His grace invites you to be this kind of man of influence. He invites older men to feed his sheep. Do you know failure is not more powerful than God's grace? Shame is not more powerful than the grace of God. Shame cannot extinguish the grace of God. When the grace of God appears, it brings saving salvation and it trains us to say no to certain things. But it also calls us to be a certain kind of men. To be certain kind of men in, in our families and in this church. So men, this is a mission entrusted to us. Will you, by the grace of God, allow you to be this kind of man, regardless of your past? Your failures do not have to define or confine you. Will you step up and just let the grace of God lead you again into a new chapter of your life? And for those of you who are pressing on, Paul would say this in Galatians chapter 6, Gentlemen, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. We know, he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, some of you, that doesn't mean that you just skip into a new chapter. Some of you may need to go back to your children and ask forgiveness. You may have to go back and say, I was harsh. This was not right. The Scripture calls me to something better. Clothe yourself with humility. Make restoration. Talk. Be open and meek and honest. But then step up and lead. And be a graybeard who is an elder for the glory of God. Let's pray.